You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I know I was asked to speak about that, but I don't think I agreed that I would. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed by the introduction. It's very, very kind and very, some of it was even true. <laughs> um, this is not at all the kind of audience that I thought it would be, and that's important because I don't like to miss my audience, so to speak. And I don't remember agreeing to speak about justice, although that's one of my principal passions. And I have this written note presentation, which is peripherally, well, it is, you know, actually it is about justice, but not as directly as you were probably hoping for, Brandon. I get so much email and so many, I'm, I'm just in a state of perpetual disarray. And speaking of that, my written remarks, maybe it would be just as well to lose them, but uh, they are in a black tote bag somewhere in this room. <laughs> and I don't know where it is. So that's my little purse. This is a much larger black tote bag, which has my manuscript in it. Maybe it's just as well if it gets lost. <laughs> uh, what? I can't hear you, Jagil. What did he say? Well, but it's, no, I have to have the tote bag, though. The tote bag's got all kinds of stuff in it. No, it's much bigger than that. It's a big, chunky tote bag. I came in through the um, I came in through the main door, and I, yeah, that's it, that's it. Anne Anne is a smart young woman. I know that already. She has many gifts. Finding my tote bag is the least of them. I suppose this is about justice, actually. But I don't think it's what Brandon wanted me to do. I'm sorry about that. I don't, I, I, I worked on this thing all afternoon, so I guess, <laughs> but I didn't realize this was gonna be such a young crowd. And I didn't realize it was gonna be this casual. I thought it was gonna be like this morning where it was just rows of people sitting in rows. And uh, also, this is a completely different crowd, I think, from this morning. How many were here this morning? A few. Okay, a significant number. Um, there's some repetition, which I don't apologize for at all, because sometimes repetition is necessary in order to get the point across. I'll say a couple of things about that formidable book called The Crucifixion, which is 600 pages long. I'm sorry that I did not think to ask you to get some of my other books, which are much more uh, manageable because they're sermon collections. But I will say this, if you are interested in tackling the crucifixion, there are two ways that you can do it without just reading it from, from cover to cover, which very few people are gonna do. <laughs> Second, Second cup. <laughs> 
I'll leave it right there in case if anybody wants it. Um, but you can, some people just read the footnotes, and that's not just a joke. It, it, it really is a good way to get the idea of what I'm driving at, just to read the footnotes. And another thing you can do is to read the introduction. Just read the introduction, 40 pages. And then set the book aside, or look in the table of contents and pick a chapter, because each chapter does stand by itself, pretty much. So um, for those of you who might be thinking of buying it, that's my recommendation. I don't recommend it to just everybody, because it's pretty dense. It's heavy going in places. Um, it's different from the sermon books, which are easier reading. So uh, I'm going to pray for myself and for you, too. Dear Heavenly Father, send us your spirit tonight. Send your spirit through this cracked vessel. Make this word your word by the grace and mercy which you have given to us. Open my lips and our ears. May it be your voice. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, one of the things I was going to say is that I get invited to preach during Lent a lot because that's when churches want to have guest speakers. So I am known for preaching about sin all the time, and I do get pretty tired of that. And uh, you may hear people all say, oh, Fleming Rutledge preaches about sin all the time. Well, there's, there, there's some background there, though, because the Episcopal Church in general, not here at the Advent, you're quite different, but in general, the Episcopal Churches and the mainline churches overall have long since uh, de-emphasized sin as a subject to talk about in, uh, from the pulpit or in congregational gatherings or in small groups. Sin and judgment are considered relics of the Puritan days. I'm a big fan of the Puritans, not because they talked about sin, but because the Puritans were truly a remarkable people and much misunderstood. But that's neither here nor there at the moment. I uh, am not going to apologize for talking about sin. I just hope that the overall message will be clear, that this is a presentation about sin as good news. We don't want to hear anything negative in church. That's the typical reaction that I hear around, as I travel around the church, and I do travel around the church a lot here and in Canada, and the same problem exists there. Although Canadians are different, they tend to be a little bit um, less cocksure about themselves than Americans. Um, Americans, we don't want to hear anything negative about ourselves. We're all into self-esteem now. When I was young, Episcopalians were aware of sin because of the old Book of Common Prayer. Now, you are one of the very few churches that still uses the Book of Common Prayer. I nearly fell out of my seat this morning. It was so wonderful to hear it again. I didn't think I ever would hear it again, um, except at 
really outlying places like St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, where I go as often as I can. It was really good to hear it. We used to say, I don't know whether we did this today or not, but we used to say that we were miserable sinners and that there was no health in us. I used to say these things every Sunday, miserable sinners and there is no health in us. I said those things every Sunday until I was in my 30s. And it didn't seem to do any damage to my self-esteem. Some people would say I had too much self-esteem. In any case, oh, by the way, Flaming Rutledge. <laughs> I, have been call, I have been called that never by friends. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking about that. I think this must have been a friendly decision, temporary decision. I hope so. In any case, most Episcopalians, not you, but most Episcopalians don't remember these references from the old prayer book about sin, which I grew up with from my childhood. I clearly remember the wonderful closing prayer from the old Ash Wednesday penitential office. O oh God, whose nature and property is always to have mercy and to forgive, receive our humble petitions. And though we be tied and bound by the chain of our sins, yet let the pitifulness of thy great mercy loose us for the honor of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen. The name of this presentation is The Broken Chain. I recently read a book recommended by my friend, the Bishop of Tennessee, so I read it. It's a minor classic called The Towers of Trebizond by Rose, uh, never mind, I've forgotten her name. It's a wonderful uh, book, but to fully appreciate it, you have to know the Book of Common Prayer. The narrator is a young woman who is uneasy about the fact that for 10 years she has been involved in a love affair with a married man. The events of recent weeks make unease about an affair with a married man seem rather quaint, but we'll let that pass. The book's narrator has long since left the Church of England in which she was raised, but she learns that the Church of England has not left her. She is a thoroughly modern person, but she knows something about sin. Here is what she writes. Even the worst sins are only the result of one choice after another, part of a chain not things by themselves. And adultery, say, is chained with stealing sweets when you are a child, or taking another child's toys, or the largest piece of cake, or letting someone else be thought to have broken something you have broken yourself, or breaking promises and telling secrets. It is all one thing, and you are tied up with that chain until you break it. So it is a vicious circle, and the odds are that you never get free. Now that's pure biblical theology. You find it most particularly in the writings of St. Paul. He helps us to understand that sin with a capital S is not things by themselves, but part of a chain 
which leaves us tied and bound. Now, we have a lot of difficulty understanding this. We are so accustomed to thinking of ourselves as autonomous agents with free will that we actually think we're free to choose sin or not to choose it. Paul writes, however, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. I don't do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I do. So it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. There is no person in this room of whom this is not true. The whole idea about being tied and bound by the chain of our sins comes from this biblical view of the matter. Sin is not actually individual sins, plural, at all. It is sin with a capital S, a great power with a capital P. Sin is a demonic power external to ourselves. Sin is opposed to everything that God intends for us. Sin as a power has us in chains. One link leads to another. We have no ability of ourselves to help ourselves, as the collect says. Paul writes that all human beings, both Jews and Gentiles, are under the power of sin. So one of the most fundamental things to grasp about sin from the outset is that we are in bondage to it. Whether we know it or not, and what a pity if we don't, whether we know it or not, our conduct and our thoughts are only partly under our control. As I said this morning, we have a classic example of the way that sin works right in front of us. When Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he and his colleagues thought it was going to be a ticket to a wonderful new world of human potential. We were going to find harmonious connections all over the globe and discover a better way to live together. I don't remember in my lifetime seeing such a spectacular example of what the power of sin does to our very best intentions. It's notable that Mark's apologies, such as they were, were very late in coming and less than heartfelt. It's very difficult for powerful people to believe that they, or to admit that they have been self-deceived. The more you love your prerogatives, the more you become enslaved by them. This view of the vulnerability of human nature, never mind human potential, this view of the vulnerability of human nature is deeply biblical. Psalm 51, the Ash Wednesday Psalm, gives us the full picture. The tradition behind this psalm, as many of you know, is that King David, a powerful person by any standard, wrote this psalm after the prophet Nathan called him to account for, yes, committing adultery with a married woman. It's one of the most penetrating confessions of sin to be found anywhere, Psalm 51. More about that in a few moments. In Psalm 51, the psalmist, presumably David, 
says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. There is a contagion of sin that affects everyone from the womb. We are afflicted with this contagion, this infection, tied and bound by those chains before we can make any decisions one way or the other. We are not born unselfish. Selfishness is our default position. And although we may not like ourselves that way, and I certainly don't like myself that way, nevertheless, we have to struggle all our lives not to succumb to it. If you think of yourself, perchance, as an unselfish person, you don't recognize how deeply buried your motivations are within yourself. Part of becoming a converted Christian is recognizing this, although I must admit that eight years of psychoanalysis have had a lot to do with it also. We do not even know what is motivating us without skilled help. And even then, we cannot really gain any mastery over it. That's how deep it is. David then learned that the human will is impotent without the action of God. Because we are bound in chains by the power of sin, it's only a greater power who can intervene decisively in human life. Only God can fully reorient our lives to himself. David prays then, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David recognizes that he does not have a willing spirit to obey God. He knows this. The human race is a coalition of the unwilling until God works upon us to create in us a new heart. The church has always recognized Psalm 51 as a profound assessment of the human condition. That's why it's assigned for Ash Wednesday and for Good Friday. Sin makes no sense in the abstract. It is only understandable in relation to God. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Now this seems strange. David's sin with Bathsheba wasn't just against God. It resulted in the death of her noble and devout husband, Uriah. And yet, David says, my sin is against you, God, you only. I think this means that we can only truly understand the depth of our sin until we understand who God is. Sin is really a meaningless concept apart from God. That's one of the reasons that people don't want to hear about it. It makes no sense unless you know who God is. Sin does not appear very real to us without a sense of what the new of the old and new testaments both call the righteousness of God. Now, there's a happy surprise here which I mentioned earlier. The unpopular topic of sin turns out to be good news. If you have begun to grasp 
the righteousness of God, you are already in a state of grace. Strange as it may seem, the people who are on their knees confessing their sin on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are the most blessed of all people. You wouldn't be in church on those days if you didn't know the freedom that you have before God. There is no need to hide anything, no need to maintain a false front, no need to invent a heroic story about yourself. That is the secret joy at the heart of knowing God. This is the God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. In Paul's letters to the church, letter to the church at Philippi, his favorite church, Paul acknowledges that as far as the world is concerned, as far as self-esteem is concerned, he, Paul, has a lot of achievements to brag about. He calls this confidence in the flesh. He lists all of his degrees and his honors and his claims to fame, and then he says in very vociferous terms, it is all worthless. Here's what he writes. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but based on that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The Christian gospel is distilled in that passage. passage. A lot of you know this. I saw a picture of Paul's all around here somewhere. Oh, he's looking over my shoulder. That's nice. Paul, you would like this. Worldly accomplishments are not worth anything compared to knowing the richness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do not come before God in any righteousness of our own. And listen to this. That includes spiritual righteousness. We hear an awful lot nowadays about spirituality, whatever that is. It's certainly not biblical. And spiritual journeys... And somehow people have gotten the idea that you can make progress this way. The gospel is every day is a new day to confess your sin and your helplessness in the power of sin and your dependence, your joyful, faithful, trusting dependence upon God. As I said this morning, it is not our journey to God that matters. It is God's journey to us. And that is guaranteed. That has already been perfected in Christ Jesus. We come before God including every sort of righteousness of our own. Lose it, says Paul, 
uh, count it as dung. I have heard people translate with the well-known four-letter word there, dung, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The person in human history who is most widely known for understanding what sin is in relationship to the righteousness of God is Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, the premier third theologian of the first thousand years of the Christian church. Augustine's confessions are still read widely in many languages and taught in secular universities. Do you know the story of how Augustine died? I did not know it until I read Robert Wilkins' wonderful book, the esteemed historian, theologian, Robert Wilkin, wonderful book called The First Thousand Years of the Christian Church. There are many wonders in this book, and here's one of them. Wilkin writes that as Augustine came toward the end of his very long life, he started to summarize his written work for years to come, generations to come, two millennia almost to come. And he wanted his work to be rightly understood. Wilkin wrote, Augustine knew that he was a great man talk about self-esteem. But here is what he did when he knew he would die. He asked for Psalm 51 to be copied out and placed where he could read it on his deathbed. His friend and biographer wrote that he read the words of the psalm over and over. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, Thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so thou art justified in thy sentence and blameless in thy judgment. And as Augustine read, his friend testified. He wept copious tears. Was this a sad death? Did the great man sink into despair at the end? On the contrary, these are the tears of a man who knows the one thing needful. David's prayer, Augustine's prayer, was rooted in a promise already coming to fulfillment. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and put a new and right spirit within me. Happy is the person who says this. Happy is the person who says this knowing that this is the promise of God to create a right spirit, a willing spirit within me, within you within his church. Happy is the person who knows with Paul that our sinfulness is going to be driven out by the righteousness of God.
Was Facebook worth it? Would we exchange our pleasure in finding old friends and forming new online communities for the privacy we used to have? Would you submit to becoming an algorithm in order to keep your access to the wonders of cyberspace? Alas, there is no human endeavor that is not vulnerable to the power of sin. As long as we can make more money and extend our power over others, the demons are very happy. We need to understand that all of us, however innocent we may think ourselves to be, all of us live under the sign of sin and death, and we can never place ultimate trusts in, trust in any of our own works, not even the best ones. That is the meaning of the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Any righteousness of my own is worthless. What takes its place, what takes its place by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God which finds what you may have spoiled and makes it into his goodness. My children remind me, they're a little more polite about this now that they're adults, but, I mean, grandmothers, <laughs> but, but they have reminded me so often when they were younger of all of the things that I did to mess them up, I uh, and their father. And a lot of that was true. But how glorious to know that the righteousness of God takes all that up and turns it into his own purpose for the great good of everyone whom he has made. T.S. Eliot wrote that we spend our lives in the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. I think that's a great line. It's from the cocktail party. We spend our lives in the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. In that struggle, we will always lose until our chains are broken by a power greater than ourselves. The person who has broken the chain of our sin is Jesus Christ. To esteem Jesus Christ above yourself means to lose your false self and find your true self. When you see your sin as God sees it, you repent like Job in dust and ashes precisely because you already know that you are held in security, perfect security and that sin can have no permanent power over you. As soon as we say to the Lord that we are tied and bound by the chain of our sins, as soon as we say that and mean it, we are free. Every time you arise from your confession of sin, you are a new person. In his Son, Jesus Christ, God has done this, he is doing it, and he will finish it in you.
Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen. Friend says she talks about sin a lot, <laughs> and she's not an Episcopalian, so I don't know, you know, why she thought that was so strange. What is she? Is she a, is she a Christian? She's, or is she a member of the church? She's a Canada Baptist Methodist. Well, I do think it depends a great deal on how we talk about sin. And I've worked on this all of my preaching life, which has been 40 years, 45 years. Um, we need to talk about sin as good news. See. If we talk about sin as bad news, we're going to turn everybody off. Um, I hope that I model this. I hope I do. I'm not sure, but I try to model talking about sin as good news. Because if you know sin, that means you know God. I don't believe that there's any usefulness in preaching sermons about sin per se. Because I guess that used to be done, but I don't think it was a good idea. Because you don't know sin unless you've met God. The, the really important thing is that people should meet God, that they should meet Jesus. And this is what, it's not just what preachers do, it's what all Christians do one-on-one, -on -one, in small groups, in everyday conversation, figuring out how to talk about Jesus in a way that will introduce people to him. I've never forgotten, I hope I'm not, I don't like to repeat myself, I think maybe I'm going to tell this later this week. Uh, well, some of you might not be there, so I'll tell it anyway. <coughs> I was at Duke University, I go there a lot to preach or teach or whatever, and I was at a dinner party, and uh, one of the people there was Joel Marcus, who is the esteemed professor of New Testament at uh, Duke, and an old friend of mine from Grace Church in the early days, and uh, he was he's Jew, or converted, and uh, we were sitting around the table, and he was talking about a panel discussion that he was on with uh, members of other faiths, including Muslims. And people were challenging him about why he had converted from Judaism to Christianity. Now, Joel is an extremely learned person. He's written a book, a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Mark, which is considered the best one available right now by many people. And this was his answer. He didn't give an elaborate answer to how he, why he was converted to, from Judaism to Christianity. He said, because I met Jesus. And I happen to know how he met Jesus. He met Jesus by 
running into somebody in the line at the grocery store who might have been kind of an odd little person but who bore witness to him concerning Jesus standing in the line at the supermarket. So you never know. What we want is for people to meet Jesus. Then we can talk about sin. If anybody wants me to sign a book, I will be very glad to do that. Uh, and I appreciate very much your attention because this is a fairly long talk and uh, it meant a lot to me to have so many people here listening and paying attention and that I thank God for that. So I will see some of you at least in the church in the next three days. God bless you all. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.